Acts chapter three, Peter and John, who are a lot like uh, Batman and Robin, they're kind of like the team for the first 12 chapters of this book. They go rolling into prayer time at the temple. They see a guy who was born lame. He's over 40 years old. He wants something from them. They say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he stands up, walking and leaping and praising God. For 40 years, he had watched people walking. When he gets his first chance, what does he do? He jumps around, right? What would you do if you had not walked for 40 years? I mean, it would be like, I guess, the comparison I thought of was, if all of a sudden you were given wings, what would you do? Right? Would you go take a nap? Are you gonna use them? So he's like, wow, I'm gonna walk and leap like I've never been able to do before. I'm gonna jump around. So he does that. This obviously causes a commotion. A crowd gathers and Peter, he's like, where two or more are gathered, I'm gonna preach. So every time there's a crowd, Peter preaches. So he just begins to share about Jesus and he finishes sharing about Jesus at the end of chapter three and then... Here's what happens, chapter four, verse one. And as they were speaking to the people, Peter's mid-sermon, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now we have an attack. So far it's been really good. Here's the attack. So the Jerusalem Association of Priests or the Jerusalem Association of Pastors see this event, know now a little bit about this church that had started and it's now 3,000 or more people. And they're like, man, this church is bigger than any of ours. It's doing this stuff and we're kind of jealous of it. So this is the last straw for them. They arrest Peter and John and throw them in prison. How crazy is that? Crazy. To have a pastor or a priest that also has the power to arrest people and throw them into jail. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? I think it's a great idea, personally. <laughs> no, I really don't. It's actually been tried throughout history. The marriage of a priestly system with a rule government system. The Roman Catholics did it for a while. It was, you know, Roman, the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire. But it was tried with the, by the Protestants too. Who here has heard of John Calvin? Okay, very, very influential person in the Reformation. Um, he made himself the magistrate of Geneva, the city he lived in. And it was, it's unreal what he turned into. Like when he got those two positions and they married together, things went totally south for him. He had, I'll give you one example. He put a bunch of people to death. But one of them was this guy named Mike Servetus, a Spaniard who loved John Calvin. They're like good buddies. Like both of them were like aligned against the corruption of the Roman Empire at that time, the Holy Roman Empire, the Roman Catholic Church. Like they're like, no, you guys are wrong. You can't be doing this. They were like just studs on that. He defended Calvin all the time to people. Then Calvin wrote his book, it's called Institutes. Has anyone read Calvin's Institutes? Okay, that's what I thought. It's so, I've never read it. I've read little parts of it. It's like reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's like the book of the Reformation. So it, it's, Calvin puts down his thing. It's just massive. It's his, it's his magna opus. So he writes institutes, gives a copy of it to his very good friend, Mike Servetus. Mike Servetus reads it, Make some notes in the margins. Hey bro, like maybe this is a little bit harsh or maybe you gotta check this or that's it. Hands it back to John Calvin. Goes to church on Sunday just thinking, that oh, was great. Gets arrested by John Calvin. John Calvin accuses him of being a heretic. 
He's found guilty of being a heretic. And then he's sentenced to be burned at the stake. And Mike Servetus, the friend of John Calvin, one of his best friends, begs John Calvin. This is what he begged John Calvin to do. Behead me instead of burn me. I'm like, bro, you need to learn the art of negotiation. You should be like, let me go. <laughs> Let's try to let me go. No, behead me instead of burn me. John Calvin said, no, you need to burn. And he burned him at a stake. One of his best friends. So there's like the five-year period in Geneva. It's called Calvin Geneva. It just goes totally berserk. Like this uniting of these two is really a bad idea. And you have in Romans 12, I think the statement of how church and government are to work. Chapter 12 of Romans says this to the church, to you and me, do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Like that's the church, that, that's our mandate. That's where we stand. And then Romans 13 is all about human government. And it says human government, listen, they're servants of the Lord and they bear the sword for a reason so that evildoers should be afraid. So the government has this other arm where they're the sword and people are afraid of that. But the church is to be this arm of grace saying, hey, we're gonna overcome evil with good. That's our greatest weapon. The greatest weapon the church has is not the sword to put people to death or burn them at the stake. It's we're gonna overcome evil with good. Let the government do that stuff. I'm happy for the government. I'm very happy to call 911 when someone has a gun and they wanna murder someone. No, I'm mad. please don't call me, right? Don't dial Matt call the police. But I'm also privileged to say my job is to keep being the good sower in my city, in my neighborhood, with my friends, overcoming evil with good. So right here, it's mixed up. And now they're taking jealousy, really, and they're arresting people that they don't like because they're jealous of them. And why do they do it? Verse two tells us, they're greatly annoyed with Jesus. That's ultimately why. We're greatly annoyed with Jesus. Isn't that kind of like today? You can get away with a lot of stuff, but not with Jesus. So for four years, I went to Portland three times a year for about two weeks. And like you would go into these restaurants and there'd be like a guy doing yoga with a giant Ganesh tattoo on him, worshiping a Buddha statue, and he's like a celebrity. Oh, he's so cool, look at him. Right, and I'd be sitting down and I'd be eating and we'd talk and I'd say like, yeah, you know, I was reading about Jesus and the moment he said Jesus, it was like the restaurant just paused. That's hate speech, bro. You can't say that here. Like his name does something else. They're greatly annoyed with Jesus, that's it. The name of Jesus is ultimately going to cause either people to repent or people to rebel. It's really the two options there. So now they're annoyed, we don't want this, so they put them on trial, verse five. On the next day, they gotta sit in prison while all the other people went home to eat dinners, enjoy themselves. On the next day, Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who are of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name Did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. Here's the trial. And out from the woodwork comes the opposition and it kind of names them. Rulers, elders, scribes, this whole priestly family. And what it's made up of is two groups. There were two fractions in Jerusalem. First, they were called the Sadducees. The Sadducees would be liberals. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. To them, religion was a good way to control people. It's good to have morals. It's good to have good ideas. So they're all for it for society. And the whole temple to them was just a business. There's no afterlife. There's no resurrection. There's no heaven. This is business, right? So you guys are now disrupting our business because people are now hanging out with you instead of coming here and doing business with us. So it's just purely monetary and maybe good for society. That's the Sadducees. Then the other group was called the Pharisees. They're the hyper-religious, right? They weren't angry about the resurrection. That kind of stuff, miracles. The Pharisees were angry about this. They didn't like the fact that Jesus went around saying, forgiveness of sin comes from me. That's what got them angry. So now they're angry at Jesus for forgiving sin. And the Sadducees were angry because of the resurrection and healing. These two groups hated each other. It'd be like Stephen Colbert and Trump. You know, there's this ongoing thing with those two guys. It's like that. They just hate each other. But they're united when it comes to Jesus. So interesting. You know, there are still Sadducees and Pharisees in the church today. The Sadducees, the liberals, it's right now, if you've watched TV, right around Easter of every year, guess what you start seeing? these special documentaries about finding what they call the historic Jesus. Have you seen those? Whenever you see historic before Jesus, you know what that means? The historic Jesus is the Jesus that is not God, did no miracles, was not resurrected. The historic Jesus was the one that just was like anyone else. Uh, Maybe he got married and moved to France and had some kids, a la Da Vinci Code, right? That's the historic Jesus. So whenever you see that, know that's what they're saying. We're going to tear through what they call the legend that built around Jesus and get back to the historic real Jesus, right? I love discovery to learn about lions. I do not turn on discovery to learn about Jesus. It's not the best source. So that's, we still have those, those liberals that say, nah, Jesus wasn't anything special. He stumbled into Jerusalem, maybe got killed, maybe didn't get killed. We're not even sure. So that's, We still have those. And then the Pharisees, here's who they are. They're the fundamentalists. And what they do to scripture is always like, "Mm." so I'll give you an example. I taught this big Bible conference in India. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever been to India. So I bought this shirt, like kind of an Indian shirt, but not so much. It was like straw colored, But on the front of it, it had embroidered into it like this gold kind of, you know, design, whatever. So one day I wore it when I taught at the Bible conference. And it caused some people to be like, why are you wearing that shirt? I'm like, what's wrong with it, man? Don't it look good? And they're like, it has gold on it. I'm like, yeah, it's awesome, isn't it? Like, look at that gold embroidery. No, you can't wear gold. I'm like, what are you talking about? First Peter chapter three. I'm like, are you kidding me? Because that's actually talking about women. I'm a guy, <laughs> number one. I'm having those problems. But what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, you cannot wear, you can't braid your hair and you cannot wear gold. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I said, okay, listen to yourself for a second. And this is a hyper-conservative kind of crew. I said, if you take First Peter 3 literally about how a woman should dress, you could have a woman come into your congregation that was pierced up, had tattoos all over the place, had her hair dyed green, and she was wearing a bikini. That would be legal according to first, if I take first Peter chapter three, literally, that'd be fine. Now I'm not saying anything's wrong with tattoos or piercing. I'm just trying to make a point to them that when you take those things out of context, you're missing the point. The point of that chapter is, hey, be careful how you dress. Don't flaunt it. That's really what it's saying. 
Don't flaunt your wealth. Don't flaunt your, don't do that to other people. Don't stumble people, right? But they took it so literal, it was, you got gold and you're sinning because you've got this gold thread embroidered on your shirt. That's what, that's what literalists do all the time. And they missed the big points of scripture. Jesus said, they strain at gnats and swallow camels. That's a fundamentalist. Why are you making a huge deal about this? Are you kidding me? Why are you doing that? You're missing the bigger point. Don't do that. So that's these two groups, they still exist. Their case is this. The case against Peter is super simple. It's based on Deuteronomy 13, where Moses says this, if something happens, miracle, whatever, you need to find out in what authority under what God, it's Elohim there, that that power was released. And if it's not Yahweh, that person needs to be killed. So they're actually doing the Bible here. They're saying, verse seven, verse six, excuse me, by what, verse seven, by what power or by what name do you do this? So they're being biblical, but they're not being biblical. Does that make sense? They're using that text now as a pretext to cut off Peter's head. That's really what they're doing. Do you know you can use the Bible incorrectly? You can find a verse or you can do whatever and you can hurt people with it. 170 years ago, this book was used to justify slavery. You can go to Southern churches and find sermons that were preached in 1850 and 1860, where they're using, totally out of context, but man, they got the verse. They got the chapter and verse to justify enslaving people. Jesus said it that way. He said John in John chapter five, verse 38, because you guys don't know the scriptures. You're using them wrong. You don't know God. That's what he says. So you gotta be very careful how the Bible's used. Like I grew up and I felt like the Bible was used like this on me. God is angry at sinners. Did you ever get that message? So here's what it did to me. I heard that as a kid and I knew this, I'm a sinner. No doubt about it in my mind. I knew that I didn't tell the truth all the time, that I was sometimes doing things wrong, that if my mom found out what I was doing, I'd be in trouble. So I knew as a sinner, and because I had this idea like God's mad at sinners, then guess what? I was under this condemnation, God's angry at you. And when you're under the condemnation that God is angry at you, guess what you do? What do you do when someone's angry at you? You stay away from them. If they're bigger and stronger and more powerful than you, I just wanna stay away from you. But then I started reading the Bible and I found that the first sinners, Adam and Eve, what does God do to them? Right after they sin, what does God do? Comes looking for them. Hey, where are you guys at? We're hiding behind a tree. We don't think you can see us. I see you. You don't play hide and go seek with God, right? He comes to them. He restores, he explains the consequence of their sin and then says, hey, I'm gonna make you skins. I'm gonna cover you. I'm gonna protect you. I'm like, wait a second. That wasn't the message I got and I keep seeing it. Jacob, when Jacob sins greatly, lies to his dad, deceives his brother, is on the run because his brother wants to murder him, God shows up. It's Genesis 28. At the last place Jacob would have ever expected, God shows up and chases him down. And you see that, it's a theme. Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah, God shows up and Isaiah's like, I am a man of unclean lips. I can't believe God's here. I can't believe I'm not being shredded right now. What is the deal? Peter, in Luke chapter five, when Jesus comes in, he says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. I'm like, wait a second. What I've been taught has been, is wrong and it's been hurting me for years. I have to undo that biblical idea and realize God rushes to the repentant sinner. He's looking for that, right? So the Bible is used wrong all the time. We have to constantly be, uh, wait a second, so these guys are trying to use the Bible incorrectly. And here's, I think, the way that if you're reading the Bible, that you get it right. You have to have the center, if you would. If you get off center of what the Bible's about, you always start to wobble and you're gonna get off kilter, right? So Jesus has asked this great question and it's really, to me, important. And the question is, hey, what's the greatest commandment? They're saying, we read this big book. There's lots of stuff in there. We're reading it. What, what's the center? 
And what does Jesus say? Love God, love people. Everything else hangs on these two. If I am studying the scripture to learn how to love Jesus better or learn how to love my wife or my kids or my neighbor or my friends better, if I'm going with those two as the center, man, the Bible makes total sense. You'll get the heart of it then. But if I get off that heart, off that center, look out. If my center becomes, hey, you have to worship Jesus on Saturday. If that becomes the center, look out, you'll start hurting people because you'll start saying things. I was like, wait a second, that's not right. If your center is the clothes you wear or not wearing gold, or you just start to get weird and off. The center of the Bible is what Jesus says it is. Love God, love people. If I'm reading the Bible to do those two things, I'm gonna stay very balanced and very biblical. So they're now using the Bible to hurt. And this is what Peter does. Remember, last time his life was on the line, how did Peter respond? He denied Jesus three times. I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know. He cursed loudly, right? He actually fired himself, said, I'm going back to fishing. Jesus has to go out, John chapter 21, restore him, like rehire him. Bro, you're in, come on, you're all right. I know you sinned, I know you blew it, come back in. Has to rehire him. And now he's going to give this simple message to these guys. His case, their cases, Deuteronomy 13. Peter's case is number one, exhibit A, the healed dude. You guys walked by him for 40 years or 30 years or 20 years, whatever. You know this dude, he's walking now, right? That's a pretty good exhibit. And then exhibit B is the empty tomb. This Jesus whom God has raised from the dead. Where's the body? Exhibit A, healed dude. Exhibit B, Jesus has resurrected. And then I love this. He looks at these guys, blames them for the murder, but then says, hey, you can be saved. He offers the good news to the very people that murdered Jesus. Pretty cool, very cool. And he uses this little Psalm, it's Psalm 118, about this stone that was to make the temple and people didn't know where it fit, so they threw it away. And he essentially says to them, you guys threw away Jesus. Talk about a mistake. You guys threw away Jesus. So I Googled this morning, like, what's the worst thing someone has ever thrown away? You know the worst thing someone has ever thrown away? Someone threw away a ticket for like $65 million, a lottery ticket. It's never been claimed. It was, you know, somewhere floating around in a garbage can somewhere. Someone else, like this was like 15 years ago, they're walking in New York City and they see this painting on the side of the road that someone had thrown out from their house, like, you know, the garbage coming out. It was a big painting, so they took it home. And 15 years ago, it was worth a million dollars. I don't know what it's worth now. None of those compared to this. You guys cast away, you threw away Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And verse 12 is the reason why Jesus is so controversial. It's that statement right there. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what makes Jesus controversial. It's his exclusiveness. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one gets to the Father but by me. Today, our society says this, all paths lead to God, right? I agree. All paths do lead to God. But when you get there, what happens next will be very different. That's the big thing. Yeah, you're gonna end up in front of your maker, no doubt about it. They'll all lead to God. But what happens next is very different. So the, the inclusive idea is this idea that all religions contain truth about God. Have you heard that? The elephant analogy? You guys heard the elephant analogy? Okay, I'll give it to you. Six blind men, blind men approach an elephant and they're told to describe what they think an elephant is like. So the first blind man comes up, reaches, holds onto the trunk. He's like, ah, oh, an elephant 
is like a snake. The second blind man comes up, reaches around, feels the leg. Oh, an elephant is like a tree. Third blind man comes up, reaches up, feels the tusk. Oh, an elephant is like a spear. Fourth blind man comes up, feels the ear. An elephant is like a fan. Fifth blind man comes up, feels the side of the elephant. No, an elephant is like a wall. Sixth blind man comes up, feels the tail, says, man, it's humid back here. It's smelly. An elephant is like a rope, right? Now, none of them get it right completely, but if you put all of those six people together, you'd have an elephant. So that's what they say religions are, that each of them have a little piece. And if we could put them all together, you know, if they could coexist, then we'd have the true answer of who God is. But the only way you can say that, what's the only way you can say that? Does anybody know? If you aren't blind and you see the whole elephant. So the people that are saying that are the most arrogant people of all. They're saying, we see the whole elephant and we know what an elephant really is like. And each religion has a little piece of him. So it's the most arrogant statement to say, all religions see a little piece of, no, you're being the most arrogant because you're saying you actually can see that it's an elephant, right? And it doesn't work because religions contradict each other on very important things. So it just, it doesn't work. So when I talk to people, this is what I always go to as quick as I can. I say, look at Jesus. He's the most unique individual in history. Read about him. Don't get sucked up in all this other stuff that people get sucked up into. Read Jesus, first of all. Make your decision about him because he is the most unique individual in history. And then secondly, look at what Jesus and the mission of Jesus has actually done through history. Because now we have 2,000 years to look at and see what did the philosophy that Jesus bring, what did it actually accomplish? And people say, all this bad, no way. There's, a, there's great books right now that are saying the shape of our world has been shaped by Jesus. His philosophy of the upside down kingdom that it's better to serve than to be served. It is better to be selfless in giving than selfish, selfish and accumulating. Like these are all Jesus ideas and they've shaped the very world that we live in. So I say, look at Jesus, first of all, look at Jesus that his drive toward love, that love actually works, that love is the only thing that transforms people. Laws will never do it. Only love does it. Love is the only thing that's gonna transform people. So it's brilliant. So this is the trial. Peter answers them. Now they bring judgment. Here's their judgment. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For they were all praising God for what had happened. It was trending on Twitter and Instagram. They couldn't shut it up, right? Viral. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Here's their judgment. Number one, verse 16, they say, this was a real healing. We saw the guy out there. We passed by him week after week, month after month, year after year. We know he's healed. He's standing there. We can't deny it, right? So what should they do? 
How about believe, right? Oh, we know this. No. This is a reminder. You will never checkmate somebody into believing in Jesus. I don't care the miracles that happen, the signs that happen. We can wish for all this stuff. You will never checkmate somebody into believing in Jesus. The same thing happened in John 11. Jesus resurrects Lazarus. And it says, some believed and others went and told on Jesus to the Pharisees. He resurrected somebody. Oh, we have to kill him then. That was their decision, right? You will never checkmate somebody into believing. It's just not gonna happen, okay? So, right, real healing, what are we gonna do? Make them stop. Okay, so number one, real healing. Number two, here's our judgment. There's real power. Verse 13 is a keeper. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus, right? Uneducated there is the word agrammatia. So we get grammar from that, ah negates it. It just means they don't have grammar. They didn't go to grammar school. And then common men literally mean, literally in the Greek, idiotes. Can you guess where we get from that? Right? They're idiots and they've never gone to school. And they're astonished at them. They're like, man, they're arguing with us. They're making sense. Like, wow, this is unbelievable, right? Why? Because they've been with Jesus. Did you guys go to seminary? Nope. Did you take a class on the resurrection? Yeah, I, I was there. It was a short class, three days long, but yeah. The three-day course on the resurrection. Thank you very much, right? And this is what they say. Verse 20 is the key. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Most religion is about a person's teaching. Christianity is about something that happened. Most religion is about, hey, this great guy taught this stuff. Christianity is, no, something occurred in history. It's called news. News is things that happen. We cannot stop talking about what took place. It's very cool. And I think they knew this. They knew if Jesus defeated death, we don't have to be afraid of it. If Jesus defeated death, we don't be afraid of it. What do you do to people like that? Right? How can you threaten them? How can, what, what do you do at that point? I'm gonna kill you. Great, man. I win. Thank you. How do you wanna do it? Behead me, crucify me upside down. I don't care. You, you cannot defeat people that say, when you kill me, I win. They got to, the, to live as Christ, but to die is gain because they've been with Jesus and they'd seen the resurrection. And then secondly, verse eight says this, when Peter began to speak, it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what you can see in Acts. One baptism, Acts chapter two, many fillings after that. I think that is the normal course of the Christian life. You get saved, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that you are baptized by God's Spirit into Christ, Ephesians 1.13 says, you are given the down payment of God's spirit, of the Holy Spirit. That happens one time, you're given God's spirit. And then from there, there are times that you are filled and empowered by the spirit over and over and over again as you need it. Have you ever felt that? Like you're in a situation like Peter, maybe. People are opposing Jesus or opposing Christianity or something. And you start to share with them and all of a sudden, it's like Bible verses start coming to your mind. You're putting ideas right as you're thinking about them. You're like, whoa, man, Billy Graham would be jealous of me. This is epic. What happened in that moment? You're filled with God's spirit. There's no better feeling in the world. It's amazing. It's what we are created to do. And that we'll see this over and over again. One baptism, Acts chapter two, many fillings. So we're to pray actually and desire, Ephesians 5.18 says, the filling of God's spirit. So they're filled. They've been with Jesus and they're filled. So these guys know real event, real miracle, real power in these guys, and they still refuse to believe. You will never argue someone into the kingdom. 
You can remove obstacles with answers, but ultimately salvation comes by revelation through God's spirit, that he is the one that draws people and saves them. That is a partnership. We do our side. I'll remove obstacles, help you understand things a little bit better, but ultimately you're gonna get saved only by Jesus. So they know this real power, real miracle. And what do they do? Verse 18, they outlaw Christianity. Now from this point forward, these guys have the power to do this. In Israel, it's now gonna become illegal to talk about Jesus. That's what they just did. They have the power to do that. You know the best way to spread the good news? Make it illegal. Read 2,000 years of history. The best way ever in the world to spread the good news is either to start killing Christians or make the gospel illegal. I have so many examples of this. I'll give you one because it's the most recent. 1948, in China, there was a revolution. Chairman Mao took over and guess what he made illegal? Christianity. We're atheists. We don't believe in Jesus. We don't believe in God. Kicked all the missionaries out. So the missionaries had been there for over a hundred years, starting with like brilliant guys like Hudson Taylor, working and toiling, trying to see people saved. And in a hundred years, they saw about 100,000 people get saved in a massive population. They never quite took off in China. So in 1948, when Chairman Mao kicked out all the missionaries, the Western church said, oh no. The church is doomed in China. Well, China went dark, if you know history, from 1948 till Chairman Mao's death in 1977. So nothing got out. It was just this closed, dark country to outside forces. So Chairman Mao dies 29 years later. And for the first time, we get a hint of what happened. What happened to the church? Is there anybody left? Guess how big the church was in 1977? 20 million. So 100 years of missionary work, 100,000. 29 years of Chairman Mao's work, 20 million, right? Unwittingly, Chairman Mao became the greatest evangelist in history, <laughs> right? Because he made it illegal stamped it underground, and man, power was released there. Sometimes we bemoan the wrong things. And God's just saying, just wait, just watch. Same thing here, just wait, just watch. And we'll get to read about it here. So then, here's their response. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with boldness. Their response, number one, they tell them, we're gonna keep preaching back in verse 19. And then they prayed. So Peter and John are now being persecuted. They spent the night in jail. They, they get released after being threatened. And where do they go? Their community group. That's who they go to. They went, grabbed their friends. Hey, look what happened. And their friends are like, we should pray. And they pray a brilliant prayer. I'll give you the ingredients of it. And then the results of it, and we'll go. Here are the ingredients. Number one, Sovereign Lord. They begin with God. 
God's sovereignty is this. God's sovereignty is not, he, he, he does not cause all things to happen. He does not want everything that happens to happen. There are plenty of things that happen in our world that God says, I don't want that to happen. Read Jeremiah 33, 32. God says, I wish that had never happened. I can't believe you guys are doing that, right? There's plenty of things that happen that God does not want to happen. That's not sovereignty. Sovereignty is this, that God has things he's going to get done and they will get done, period. That God has a certain plan and this plan, no matter what happens, he's gonna make it happen, right? So my sin, I am the cause of my sin. God does not cause it. But God can actually use my sin in his purpose because he is that great. That's the idea. So they're like, sovereign Lord, you're on the throne. You're in control and you are creator. If you're doubting God's power, just read Genesis 1 verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible. Because it says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can have the faith to believe in Genesis 1 1, there's nothing, there's nothing that God can't do. If he spoke the stars into existence, if he just uttered the word and we, we have the sun and the planets and the moon, nothing's too big for him. Like I agree with hippies. I hear God in nature. I love to be in nature. I love to look at the heavens at night and just stare at the stars, right? I've said this before. I think pollution is satanic because it, muffles God's voice in the stars. There is something majestic about just staring out at the universe and being like, wow, God spoke those into existence. If you get a great God, you'll make great requests of him. If you get a small God, you'll only make small requests of him. So they start out with God, you're sovereign and you're the creator of everything. Make great requests of God. God, we want Grants Pass. God, we want Josephine County. God, we want Oregon. We want Oregon to be the most Jesus-following state in the 50. Man, that's the way you should be requesting. God, how do we do that? Because you're a great God. So they start with God, and they move to Scripture. They quote Psalm 2. In their prayer, they're quoting the Scripture. Have you ever prayed Scripture? It's what the apostles do right here. I think it's one of the most powerful things to do with God's word, especially the book of Psalms, just to read one verse and then pray about it. Because too often, here's what we do as Christians. If we have our quiet time, I don't even like that word. I don't think we're supposed to be quiet with God. So I walk, man, I'm out, I'm talking, I'm loud, man. I have this saying on my desk, if you don't talk to your Bible, I won't talk to you. So if you came into my study at times, you'd think I need to be committed to a, a straight jacket, because I'm talking, because don't talk to me, I won't talk to you. So uh, they're talking, scripture right here. They're praying it. If not, to me, it's like this. You, you, you read your Bible, right? And then you pray. So it's almost like two monologues. And I don't think it's supposed to be that way. I think you see right here, they're dialoguing. So it'd be like this. It'd be like uh, on Tuesdays, before I come home from the office, I always call my wife. Hey, so it'd be like this. It'd be like me doing this to my wife. I'd call her and say, hey, listen. And I just go, talk, 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 for five minutes straight. And I'm like, okay, now you, your turn. And so then she's like, talk, 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 for 50 minutes straight back to me. <laughs> That'd be weird, isn't it? It's not, it's not a dialogue then. What they're doing is they're dialoguing. And when they read this Psalm, here's what they're reminded of. Right? They're like, why is this happening to us? We healed the guy and we got thrown in prison for it. That just doesn't make sense. And then they read Psalm 2 and they're like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Things have been going so well for us, right? 2,000 or 3,000 people believing, people getting healed, generosity, uniting, all the, it was going so well. And then we were attacked because we forgot we're in a battle. So Psalm 2 reminded them Oh man, the right world view. Of course, the world is gonna be aligned against Jesus because it's under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John 5, 19. Of course this is gonna happen. Okay, okay, all right. This makes sense of what we're seeing right now. So God, scripture, 
And then there are events. They just start telling God about their events. Hey, this stuff has happened to us, God. Now he knew it, but they're saying hard things are happening to us. Be careful of what I call overselling Jesus. Where you're like, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Sure. But that can be taken as, man, everything's gonna be peaches and roses from now on out. And that's not true. Jesus says, in this world, you'll have tribulation. Paul says, all who live godly will suffer persecution, right? Very few people have those scriptures on their refrigerator. Man, praise God for that today. But it's the truth. And if you don't know that side as well, then when something hard happens to you and you were sold, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. You're like, wait, this isn't wonderful. I'm out. It's what I call selective scriptural syndrome where you only choose the good verses. You don't balance them out with, no, we're in a battle. You have a real enemy who wants to take you out and there will be bad days. But be of good cheer, Jesus says, I've overcome. And ultimately, ultimately, the victory is eternity with him. That's the ultimate victory. So they, they pray this like, oh, okay, all right? And then they make petition. They ask, right? People will say this to me, Matt, I never pray for myself. And I say to them, my, your halo is shiny today. I pray for myself all the time. I need all the help I can get. I think it's perfectly right to make petition. They do it right here. But notice what they do. They don't pray for a changed circumstance, do they? They don't pray, hey, kill those Jews that are against us. You know what they pray for? Boldness to keep speaking. Not their comfort, their character. God, okay, don't worry about my comfort. I want better character. That's what I want. I was reminded of this and I'll never forget it because I went to this place in Port-au-Prince, Haiti called the Sisters of Charity where you just take care of babies. Your only job when you go there is you pick up a baby and you walk around with them. And these babies are mostly terminal, headed for death. So your job is just comfort this baby before it dies. So it's really, really hard place. And as I'm walking around this baby in Port-au-Prince in uh, Sisters of Charity, I I come across this picture of Mother Teresa, who's like, it was her order of uh, nuns that ran the Sisters of Charity. And underneath that little picture of of Mother Teresa was this statement. It says, said, and it's a quote, it was in English, it said, I know Jesus won't give me too much. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. I love that. When Jesus gives you hard stuff, it's because he trusts you. And he says, you can handle it. And this is gonna develop you. Spurgeon said this, don't give me a lighter load, give me a stronger back. That's what they're praying for right here. Don't take away these circumstances because maybe they're really good for us. Instead, give us boldness in the midst of these circumstances. Change us to match the circumstance so that we overcome it and it doesn't overcome us. I love that. It's what God said to Jeremiah when Jeremiah started complaining about his hard things. And God said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want you to run with horses. You're being weird right now by little things. My goal for you is that you can be in, what are the big races for horses? Whatever they are. The Triple Crown, the Kentucky. I want you to be in the Kentucky Derby. I want you out there like running with these stallions. That's what I want for you. Like no one else is gonna do that. That's what I want for you. I have big plans for you. Don't give up. That's what they're praying for right here. And then we did the last verses on Sunday, but I wanna make one final point because look at the end of verse 32. They prayed for boldness, filled with God's spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They asked and did. They didn't ask and they wait on the couch for like for some magical thing to happen to them. They asked for boldness and then they went out and preached with boldness. Super simple, right? Too often I think we pray for all these things and we're like waiting for some magic thing to happen. No, if you pray for boldness to preach, go preach with boldness. Like, is that simple? Here's the illustration. Who's seen The Wizard of Oz? First time I saw that movie as a little kid, I hated it. You know why? I hated the flying monkeys, for sure. (laughs) Stealing the dog. But 
you have at the beginning of the movie, the fairy godmother, right? Her house kills the wicked witch. And then she's given the shoes, right? She goes through hell, right? Her dog is stolen by flying monkeys. Like one bad thing after another bad thing. She thinks the Wizard of Oz is gonna save her. The wizard is a complete fraud. And then the fairy godmother shows up again. And what does the fairy godmother say? It's your shoes. Just click and say, I wanna go home. I was like, what? You are an evil woman. Why didn't you tell her that in the very beginning? That she had the shoes on the whole time. To me, that's a Christian walk. You've got the shoes on. Second Peter chapter one says, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. You've already got it. You just gotta discover what you've already gotten. Click your heels together and go preach the boldness because you've already got it. That's what these guys are realizing. We prayed for it, but we already got it. Let's go change the world. Edgewater, you right now, First Peter chapter one, verse three, have everything you require for life and godliness. Go do it. So Father, forgive me for looking for a Wizard of Oz moment when it's already happened. It happened 2,000 years ago on the cross where you defeated sin and death and set me free from the ruler of this world and purchased me and redeemed me and cleansed me and gave me a brand new heart and filled me with, filled me with your spirit. I pray that I would be one that walks in that strength and power. I pray that each of us would be those that go from here knowing that you've given us everything we need, the daily bread we, we require for whatever happens tomorrow, that we've been equipped, that we can look to you, be strengthened by you, pray to you, be filled with your spirit and be victorious on Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday and this month and this year. So maybe we go from here being bold proclaimers of the good news of Jesus. We ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.